All right, if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Acts chapter 19. Are you guys good this morning? See, before, before service, we, we taught, Connor asked, how's everybody doing on a scale from 1 to 10? Now, whenever I ask how, someone, how things are on a scale from 1 to 10, I, as a rule, always say, you can't say 7. Seven, seven is the easy answer. What I need to know is like, are you north of seven or south of seven? Like, and that, that's a harder question to ask. How are you guys doing this morning? Number wise. All right, we got a nine, we got a seven. See, figures that somebody would shout out seven, right when I say you can't shout out seven, that seems pretty typical. All right, never mind. Anyway, I hope that you're doing well this morning. I hope that you are feeling a sense of anticipation that God is moving um, it is Santa Ana winds, which always makes it interesting in the middle of the night. But Acts chapter 19 is where we're going to be today. We're going to start in verse 8, go to verse 20. However you're looking at God's Word at this morning, whether it's on your phone or on a paper Bible, whatever it is, once you get there, if you would, stand in honor of God and His Word. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. This is Paul. Verse 9, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years. So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is God's word. Amen and amen. You may take a seat. Right out of college, I was a junior high director up in the Bay Area, not far from where Dee and her family was at on the on the San Francisco, on the peninsula in San Mateo, California. And I was working on a staff up there, a youth staff with a high school director. I was the junior high director. And we had an opportunity to go on a houseboat trip um, out to, um, this was up to Lake Shasta, 
And so we went out there, and it was actually a time when um, one youth pastor had gathered up a number of other youth pastors and youth workers, and we had about 20 or 30 people out on a couple of houseboats on uh, Lake Shasta, and it was a wonderful time. It was a time where we could be refreshed together, where we could kind of share the war stories. You know, if you've been in youth ministry, you've been through the wars. You know kind of how that works. And, there, um, and one of the things that was particularly helpful, and I, I found this throughout my life in ministry, is just when you have an opportunity to sit down with other people who are in ministry, to find some of the people who've been a little bit further along on the path. People who have done what you're doing now 10, 20, 30 years beyond what you've done. And there was one youth pastor there that he had been in youth ministry for 30 years, three decades of youth ministry. And I was, you know, green behind the years. I was about five years in. I had some experience, um, probably more. I, I thought I had more than I actually did. But, you know, this is the way it all goes, right? We all think we're doing better than we are. But all that to say, I, I sat down with him and I just asked him, hey, after all this time, what sort of advice do you have for younger youth leaders, younger youth ministers, pastors? What sort of advice do you have? And, and he, he thought for a second, and he said, you know, if there's one thing that I could, I could just encourage younger pastors, particularly youth pastors, to kind of embrace in their ministry, is this idea that there are times when the tide comes in, and there are times when the tide goes out. And what he meant by that is, he says, over the three decades, there have been years where, like, being part of our youth group was, was the cool thing to do on campus. That we, we attracted a lot of people because we were kind of in good favor in the culture. People looked at us, they looked to us for wisdom. The school looked to us as a, as a, uh, a useful, meaningful part of the education and the life of its, of its students in the community, that we had good relationships with parents, and we were really well thought of by not only adults, but also by kids. That it was, it was one of those times where the tide comes in, and our youth group numbers swelled, and, and we would get big, and then our influence would grow in the community. And he says at the same time, through, through nothing different that we would do, the tide would go out. And maybe we didn't have as much influence in the schools. It wasn't such a cool thing to come be part of the youth group. It wasn't, we would find that we weren't necessarily looked upon with glee from all in the community, that people might have looked at us a little sideways or wondered, what are they trying to do over there? But that it would change, that the tide would, that, that season would end and the tide would come back in. And, it would, and he says, this was kind of the nature of his three decades of youth ministry was like. It was the tide would go out, the tide would come in, God would bless and their numbers would swell, and the tide would go out through really no fault of anyone except that there were just these tides in ministry. And probably if you've been in ministry for any amount of time, or if you've even in your own life, you kind of have this sense that there are times and seasons, and we talked about this even uh, a couple summers ago where we talked about there are seasons in life where it seems like the tide is coming in, right? Where you feel like you're being blessed by God, where you feel like the wind is at your back, where you feel like your influence is growing. And it's not like you're not working hard, your hard work, but your hard work is coupled with the idea that you're seeing results of that. But there are other seasons where it's like you feel like you're running against the wind and like no matter how hard you work, you don't feel like any doors open to you. These are kind of the nature of seasons of life, but also seasons of ministry. 
They may kind of experience, like you might even be able to identify what those seasons are in your own life, or even right now if you're in one or the other of those or, or somewhere in between. As we look through the book of Acts, we see this sort of thing with the apostle Paul. And what I want to do today in the passage that I just read to you, and actually chapters 19 and 20, and we're going to look a little bit at both of those chapters, this would have been, as you look at commentators, this would have been really the peak of the influence of the Apostle Paul. To put it in those terms, the tide was coming in for Paul. If you think about his previous, we're on what is called the third missionary journey. And he comes to this place called Ephesus, and you know, he, he's going to experience a tremendous amount of success that his influence is going to grow, that he's going to really uh, impact the culture of the city of Ephesus. He's going to actually impact the economy of the city of Ephesus, one of the largest cities in the ancient world. Paul and the message of the gospel is going to have tremendous influence in this city. And it's not always been the case. You think about the second missionary journey, and he's like, he wants to go this way, the Spirit says no. He wants to go this way, the Spirit says no. And he ends up here, and he's like, where am I supposed to go? Go up to Macedonia. So he goes up to Macedonia. He has, a, he has a vision of a Macedonian man. He goes up to Macedonia. Who does he find? A bunch of women. And then he preaches the gospel, and then he gets arrested and beaten up and run out of town. Like, this is where I'm supposed to go? It doesn't feel like the tide's coming in, right? And he gets run out of town a couple places, three, oh for four, right, before he gets to, to, to Corinth. So the second missionary journey was not kind of the tide coming in. But in this passage, what we're going to see today is that the tide is coming in for the Apostle Paul and for the gospel. And what we're going to see is that this is going to be a season of innovation for the early Jesus movement a season of power, of seeing the power of God work mightily in a town, and also to see that this is going to be a time where there's a rich sense of a network that's coming around the Apostle Paul and that Paul is building. And so for, it's, it's really interesting, what we're going we're gonna to look at in these, in these two chapters, there is so much of our New Testaments that can be traced back to these two chapters of the book of Acts. And so what I want to do today is I just want to ask this question and, and, this, and ask this question about have you been in a season of ministry, of church life, where you've seen the tide come in? And what has that been like? What, have been, what does it mean to be faithful when the tide comes in? What does it mean to be faithful when the tide goes out? And to look at this idea about what's going on with the Apostle Paul and to ask, what are the sorts of things that characterize this season of ministry? It's a crazy season. You've got a roving band of exorcists running around. I mean, this is a crazy passage, but I want to look at this time and look at this passage and ask the question about what can we find for ourselves in this particular passage. So this passage in Acts marks the heights of the influence of Paul's traveling ministry. And after this, by the way, the, the, the missionary journey before this was this, like, how do I get this done? And then after this, Paul's going to be in prison. He's not going to be able to travel around. This is the height. This is the, the highest peak of the influence of Paul as a traveling evangelist. Doesn't mean that the gospel's not going to go out after this while he's in prison or while, while he's detained, but as a traveling free evangelist, this is the height. 
All right? So I'm going to take a look at this passage, make some observations, and see what this passage tells us and what God has for us today. You guys with me? All right. All right. Let's take a look. Let's open up to, uh, to 19.8, and let's look at this, pa- this first part and see what's going on. So in 19.8, it says, he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know if you've been keeping score so far in the book of Acts. Some of you guys might have. I know some of you, you're scorekeepers, you, you take your notes. But up to this point, what is the longest that Paul has been able to go into a town, walk into a synagogue, and say, Jesus is the Messiah? So far, how, what's the longest amount of time he's been able to do that in any city? It's probably, I'll answer my own question for you, it's probably Thessalonica. Three Sabbaths he was able to be in Thessalonica, in the synagogue in Thessalonica. That was the longest he was able to do it. Now he gets here to Ephesus, how long is he staying? It's not three weeks, it's three months. So to think about this, even that right there is saying that God is opening doors for the Apostle Paul in what is his custom. When he comes into a town, he goes to the synagogue first as a Jerusalem-trained rabbi. He comes into a synagogue first, and he actually experiences a, a pretty good amount of success. Now, again, going into a Jewish synagogue, you can only say Jesus is Messiah for so long until somebody says, well, wait a minute, that doesn't seem to, to, to work. And that Paul, so Paul then takes off, and he says in verse 9, some be, or, or Luke says in verse 9, when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, remember that Christians right now are not called Christians, they're called followers of the way, um, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him. So he had made disciples and converts, people had come to faith during this three-month time that he's in the synagogue. And he takes them away, and then he goes, and he rents this place called the Hall of Tyrannus. We'll talk about that in just a second. But what we see is that he has success, that there's an open door, and he walks through that open door, and we see that Paul gains, well, the gospel gains followers. It's hard. One of the things about this passage is we're going to see how much of this is Paul, people following Paul, and how much of this is people following, having faith in Jesus. And we're going to see that people are confusing those a little bit in this passage. But it seems as though people have authentic faith in Jesus. They follow Paul out of the synagogue. And the point is that this begins with some success. And we're going to see that this success continues regionally. Look at 1910. It says, this continued for two years. Now, that two-year time, when Paul meets with the Ephesian elders at the end of the third missionary journey, he says to them that I have been serving with you for three years. And most scholars think that what we see in these two chapters is a three-year period in the ministry of Paul and the Jesus movement in Ephesus. Three years, okay? So this is going to continue for three years, but it says, it really very interesting in verse 10, it says that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord both Jews and Greeks. And I suppose this idea, all the residents of Asia, and what we're talking about here is we're talking about Western Turkey, 
uh, Western Asia Minor. So if you look at, at Turkey, we don't have a map for you today, but you look at Turkey, Turkey's divided into three parts. You've got the Western part, you've got the Central part, Paul's from the Central part, and then you have the Eastern part where like Mount Ararat is at. But this is the Western part on the Mediterranean, and all that region, that whole Western region of modern-day Turkey hears the word of the Lord during this time. And this will make some sense as we understand the city in which Paul is. You guys with me so far? We're, we're doing a little bit of geek mode this morning. So hang on. If you're taking some notes, there are some pretty significant things that come in here as we understand the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is a fascinating city. And if you go there today, you can actually see um, quite a, a spectacular archaeological dig that is still ongoing. Um, it, is a, it is a city that in this day, in the first century, it was one of the largest cities of the Roman Empire. As a matter of fact, Rome was obviously the largest city. If you go down to, to Egypt, Alexandria, was that was kind of the big city. But in Turkey, in modern Turkey or in Asia Minor, Ephesus was the big city. And one of the reasons why Ephesus was such a big city was it was a port. And if you were going from inland Turkey out to the coast and on to Rome, you would go, if you were going to go, you would go through Ephesus. And if you were coming from Italy or Rome and you were going into the mainland, you would come through Ephesus. And so you had Ephesus as a hub of trade that you would have people coming out of the mainland and coming in from the sea, and Ephesus was a center for that. There are a couple other things that Ephesus was known for. As a matter of fact, Ephesus was known, and we see in our passage, we didn't read about this in our passage, but later on, you're going to see there's a big deal made about Artemis, Artemis of the Ephesians, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Artemis, the temple of Artemis in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple of Artemis, which is in Ephesus, it was the largest religious structure in the ancient world. It was almost a full football field wide and almost two football fields long, covered with pillars and colonnades. It was the largest structure. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. And we, we kind of think like if there's something like, like the Grand Canyon or, you know, you go and you visit these, these wonders that we would be tourists and we would see those things. In the ancient world, people came to Ephesus just to see the temple of Artemis. Once a year, there was a festival to the temple, in, in the temple, and there would be tens of thousands of people every year that would come to Ephesus just to see the temple. So Paul sets up shop here, and this becomes a, a central hub. Now, also, you guys might recognize the name Ephesus because, well, one, there's a book of the Bible called Ephesians, right? But you might also know if you've read the book of Revelation that one of the seven churches of the book of Revelation is, is Ephesus, is the church in Ephesus. And then you have those seven churches, right? Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Did I get them all seven? Close enough. If I didn't, you can keep score at home, okay? But here's the deal. The reason they're in that order is because in that region, that was a trade route. Those are all cities on a circuit, that if you were a tradesman and you practiced your trade in Ephesus or you came in by sea, you would go from Ephesus north to Smyrna, then all the way up to Pergamum, and then to Thyatira, and then to Sardis. Sardis, by the way, Sardis had the largest, 
you can go there today. I've been there. Um, you can go there. The, the largest Jewish synagogue that's been excavated in, outside of Israel is in Sardis. You go down to Philadelphia and Laodicea, you would take on this trade route. And so Ephesus turned out to be this hub, not only of east to west travel, but as a trade route. And so when Luke records that Paul's ministry here, in this ministry, that all of Asia hears about the gospel, it implies that Paul is going to be utilizing this trade route that even by Laodicea, only about 10 miles away, is the city of Colossae. The book of Colossians is written to that group. The, the, the book of Philemon, the letter to Philemon. Philemon was a well-to-do man in Colossae. And as you think about this time and what's going on during this, that this trade route that Ephesus is a strategic center for Paul, and God is going to bless his ministry during this time. It's not that God's not part of his ministry, but this is a time when, again, the tide comes in for the Apostle Paul, and his influence is going to grow. I think one of the other things about this time is that um, it doesn't say in this passage. In this passage, we, we, have, um, we have this example of he goes to the synagogue. We've got this story about the seven sons of Sceva and his merry band of traveling exorcists. Um, that, thank you very much. Thank you, Gene. I appreciate the, the laughs. Um, and then there's a riot from the silversmiths because Paul cuts in. Like, his ministry is so effective, it cuts into the idolatry trade. <laughs> and he, I mean, he actually disrupts a whole industry. People don't want to buy idols because of the ministry of the followers of Jesus in this city. And all the craftsmen are like up in arms about this whole thing. So, but there's a couple of things that happen during this time, that during this time, in these two chapters, these are the things that happen. He converts a man named Epaphras, who takes the gospel to a town that we noted as Colossae. He eventually writes a letter to the church in that town and also a letter to Philemon. While in Ephesus, he writes two letters to the church in Corinth, 1st and 2nd Corinthians are written while he's in, during these two chapters. He sends out messengers and builds a network of ministry partners. Look, just for a second, look at chapter 20, verse 4. While, this, while he's on this trip during this time, these are some of the ministry partners that are named. Acts 20, verse 4. Sopater the Berean, Berea is in Macedonia, Berea is in Macedonia, the son of Pyrrhus accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus. So two men from Thessalonica, one man from Berea. He says, Gaius of Derby and Timothy. Both Gaius and, Der and Timothy are from central Turkey. And they are with Paul. And then it says the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. Or Trophimus, sorry about that. Um, Tychicus is probably from Colossae. And then Trophimus, we don't know exactly where he's from, but he's from that area. But what he's done is he's building a ministry partnership and network. We've already met Aquila and Priscilla in the previous passage. We met Apollos in the previous passage. But Paul has developed robust partnerships and friendships during this three-year period that are, that are going to shape the rest of our New Testament. 
It's just two chapters in the book of Acts, but this is a time when the tide is coming in for the Apostle Paul, and we see in our Bibles, and we see in the, influ- in the, in the history of the church that the influence of what God is doing during this time, during these two chapters, is, is changing really the face of the world that we know it at that time. After he's in Ephesus, he travels back up to Macedonia, ends up in Corinth for about three months on this journey as we move into chapter 20. And when he's at the end of this, in while he's in Corinth for three months at the end of this three-year period, he writes the book of Romans. During this three-year period, he writes 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and he writes what is probably the most articulate, the most, the most serious articulation of the gospel that has ever been written in this three-year period. You talk about a time where he has, he's developed these great relationships and partnerships, and it's been a time of great reflection and creativity. It's been a time of productivity, and it's a time that God is blessing. This is one of the most successful and productive times of Paul's ministry. I hesitate to say success because success, faithfulness is really the measure of success, is it not? It's not numbers, it's not productivity. Faithfulness is the measure of success, but when we think about influence, that Paul's, the influence that God gives to the apostle Paul is at its zenith in this passage. And one of the reasons for that is that as Paul believes in Jesus and follows Jesus and prays and puts himself before Jesus, that the power of God moves mightily in this three-year period. The power of God is going to move mightily. And one of the reasons for this is that God is at work in a powerful way when the followers of Jesus tell the story of God's good news. And one of the things that we're going to see, particularly in the city of Ephesus, is that as, the faith, as Paul's faithfulness to proclaim the gospel and the power of God comes in tangible ways, that that is going to come in conflict with the power brokers and the spiritual power brokers of the city of Ephesus. In order to understand this confrontation, one of the things we have to understand is the idea of magic. We're going to see here that we've got, I mean, look at verse, um, uh, at verse 11. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and even sp- evil spirits came out of them. And you're like, what did you just say? <laughs> like, handkerchiefs and aprons that touch Paul's skin are being carried out and are being employed to, to cure people of diseases and cast out demons. Like, what the heck is going on? And you're like, is this something that we should be doing? Like, I, <laughs> like I get sweaty, you wipe it off, you're like, hey, can I have that? You know, 
Like, is that, is that what we should be doing? And, and here's, here's the point. In order to understand this passage, even to understand this roving band of exorcists that's going around invoking the name of Jesus, who are these people? In order to understand that, we have to understand Ephesus and Ephesus's role in the ancient world as not only a hub of trade, but also a hub of magic and magical practitioners. And you're like, what did you just say? Like magic? Are we talking David Copperfield? Like, hello, you know? No, we're not talking illusionists. We're talking about magic in the sense of um, actual like intercultural studies or, or anthropological understanding of, of actual spiritual magic, okay? Now, Ephesus was known as a place where practitioners of this sort of thing would come together and, and even either share or train each other. Now, hang on for one second. You're like, before, before you're like, all right, crazy dude, I know you're at home, you're like, who's the crazy guy on TV? Um, but here's the thing, um, magic was, was and is a real thing, and there is a fascination behind it in the ancient world as well as the modern world. As a matter of fact, one of the, the, the leading, uh, the leading uh, researchers and uh, experts on magic in the ancient world is just a, a few minutes away up the freeway, Clint Arnold, who's the dean of Talbot School of Theology, He's actually written many books on the idea of magic in Ephesus and Colossae during this time. I had a chance to, to study Colossians with Dr. Arnold and, and be a colleague of his. It was, he, he's a wonderful man, but he, he, this is what he says about magic, okay? Magic being different than religion. This is what he says, if I can catch up with my notes here. He says, um, the overriding characteristic of the practice of magic through the Hellenistic world, so the Greek-speaking world, was the awareness of a spirit world exercising influence over virtually every aspect of life. So you had a, you had a world in which Paul was preaching the gospel in which locally there would be these kind of local deities that people would try to appease to, to keep themselves from harm. If you were a sailor, you would be like, I need, to, I need to appease the God of the sea before I go out on a boat. And so I might make a sacrifice or worship at a certain altar or something like that. But it was understood or the idea was that you could get protection based on if you knew who the local deity was and what you could do. Magic is this idea that there are helpful spirits out there and not helpful spirits. And some are more powerful than others. And the idea of a magician of the ancient world was to be able to figure out which ones were the helpful ones and which ones were the harmful ones. And through this knowledge, means could be constructed with either spoken or written formulas or amulets or tokens for the manipulation of the spirits in the interest of the individual person. Now, if you were the average person in the ancient world, you didn't know much about magic. You might buy a little amulet, put it in your pocket, like a little rabbit's foot or something like that for good luck or like a St. Christopher's medal or something like that, which you believe that this would keep me safe. But if you were a little more advanced in this, you would sell those things or you would offer cures for diseases or you would offer cures for uh, curses that had been put upon you. We live in a very modernistic culture that where this might feel very foreign to you, but it also might feel very real to you. If you talk about like uh, you go to a psychic 
or a hand. Like that's all the, the idea of using magic, of, of employing the spirits or a medium or something like that. And our culture is fascinated with the idea even if we don't always practice it. Magic was a major industry in Ephesus. It was a hub for practitioners. Now, what's the difference between what's the, what's the difference between what you do when you pray to God and what someone who practices magic do when they manipulate the spirits? Now, magic is about finding the right spells and, and um, substances and saying the right words in the right order to manipulate the spiritual realm, okay? And this is not what Paul's doing. As a matter of fact, in this passage, I think Luke is making the case that faith in Jesus and the power of God that comes by means of faith in Jesus is far more powerful than magic. And that magic is something to be re renounced when you come to faith in Jesus. See, when you pray, when you pray, you are not manipulating God. Or just because you say the words in Jesus' name does not mean that is a, that means a slam dunk that that prayer is going to be answered. If, you, if we think that, then we're using our prayers as magical incantations. Where we're looking at God as kind of like a vending machine. If I just put in the right amount of coins and press the right button, then I get what I want. That's magic. And then if you don't get what you want, then you kick the vending machine, right? Or whatever. That's, that's, we see that. I, jo I joke about that, but we see that with, when people pray and they ask God. It's not that we're manipulating God to give us something. That's magic. What we do is we ask. We ask a person on our behalf to act on our behalf. To give of their own graciousness and generosity. Not to manipulate. See, the difference between religion and magic, religion asks, it makes petitions. Magic manipulates the spiritual world. And what we're going to see here is that the Apostle Paul, is, when he comes into town, he says, magic, what we have, our God loves us so much, we don't need magic. Although not everybody who hears the gospel, when Paul preaches it, believes that. This is what they do. So, this is what they do. If we look back at our, at our passage in 1911, God was doing extraordinary miracles at the hands of Paul. By the way, who's doing the miracles? Is Paul doing the miracles? Luke is going to go to a major, to great lengths to make it clear that though these are being done at the hands of Paul, who's doing these miracles? God is doing these miracles. This is not about that Paul has some agency, and you'll see that that gets confused, doesn't it? Because they're like, you know, the, the image is that Paul's working in a shop, and he's got a sweat rag around his head, and he's got an apron, and at the end of his teeth, like somebody comes in to ask about, hey, what is this thing about Jesus? And he says, well, Jesus is the Messiah, and like, put your faith in Jesus. And they're like, that sounds awesome. Hey, when you're done with that rag, can I use that? Because, like, I'm coming, like, I'm coming out of, I'm a, I'm a practitioner of magic, and I see you doing this, and maybe if I use that, if I grab that, I'm going to take that out here, and I'm going to use this in my own practice. And the crazy thing is, it works for a while. Now, is Luke saying this is what we ought to do? I don't think so. As a matter of fact, if you read the whole passage, what's the point of the whole passage? 
I mean, if you look in chapter 20, I'm sorry, in chapter 19, at the end of this, in verse 19, a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them, found them to be 50,000 pieces of silver. That's 50,000 days of days wages. That the idea behind this passage is not like find a handkerchief of, of one of your, you know, a miracle worker in your church and take it out and use it. The idea is that they are misunderstanding the point of this. And we're going to see that the seven sons of Sceva misunderstand this as well. So it's not that we, it's a little bit of a mystery, like why are these things being used? Or like it talks about Peter's shadow earlier in the book of Acts falling on people and healing people. And I don't know exactly why this, this works, but the point of this passage is you don't need a handkerchief from the apostle Paul to get healing. You ask the God of the universe to move on your behalf and he loves you. He will hear your prayer. And if it, is, if it is really a prayer that is in the name of Jesus, by the will of Jesus, according to the will of Jesus, according to all the things that Jesus stands for, that God will, 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 will actually answer that prayer. But it's not that we're manipulating God. It's not like if we bring the right token or the right amulet or the right handkerchief or the right apron that we get healed. That's a misunderstanding, and I think Luke is making that clear here. Probably to, to punctuate this, look at 1913. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, you're like, itinerant Jewish exorcists. What the heck? But in the ancient world, there was, a, there was a, quite an industry of Jewish exorcists. We actually see that in Jesus' ministry, that there are other bands of roving Jewish exorcists that are unable to cast out demons that Jesus is able to cast out. There are these folks that are out there. And they invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, and they use, they use a typical magical formula. We know these magical formulas because we've actually found them in papyrus digs. And they say, we adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So they use the name of Jesus as a magical incantation. And what Luke is going to show is that it's not simply saying the right words in the right way. The person of Jesus is not one who, who aids your magical incantation. Jesus is the king. And Jesus is one who the response to Jesus is not to manipulate or use his name for your own good. His, your, the, respond, the proper response to Jesus is faith and submission to Jesus. Why is Paul, why is God blessing Paul's ministry? Paul has put his faith and has surrendered to Jesus and is now working alongside of God in this enterprise, proclaiming the name of Jesus. And this story is in here for a little comical relief in what is otherwise a pretty serious uh, narrative. But these priests, they do this, the evil spirit answers them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And then um, in a turn of an ironic turn, that the, the only people who are cast out, the demon is not cast out, the exorcists are cast out. 
And they are stripped of their, they're stripped and they're beaten up and they run out of this house naked and it provides a little bit of levity to this in what is otherwise a fairly serious matter. I don't want to say that it's not serious. But anyway, you get the idea. And we actually find, like earlier in chapter 13, we had this man, Simon Magus, the magician, Simon, who actually wants to purchase the ability to bestow the Holy Spirit on people. He's a magician. And so Paul here is showing, and that Luke is showing, that it is not merely the words, it's not merely the name of Jesus, and it's not merely the person of Paul. It is faith in Jesus and the God who raised him from the dead. That is where the power of God comes from. And it's not a power that can be manipulated simply by saying the right words in the right way at the right time. The power of God comes by means of our authentic faith and trust in Jesus. And getting alongside Him, jumping in the river with Jesus and seeing where that river goes. And if you jump in the river with Jesus and you see where that river goes, then you are going to see the power of God at work. But you can't simply try to divert that river in your direction. It's not magic. It's faith. Acts 19, 17, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. So we see, again, the influence of Paul. Became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. Fear fell upon them all, and the name of Jesus was extolled. Obviously, the name of Jesus was tried to be employed for magical use, but now it was just, look, the name of Jesus is more than what we thought it was, is the idea. This is more than what we thought it was. Now also many who were believers came. This is a weird verse too. Many of those who, also many of those who were now believers came. So these were people who had believed in Jesus. And what are they coming to do? They're confessing and divulging their practices, their, their magical practices. So we see that there are people who, it took a little bit, they came to faith in Jesus. They were still practicing this stuff and they started to realize, I shouldn't be doing this. There was an understanding in the magical circles that secrecy was something that gave your spells power. And what were these people coming and doing? They were just coming together and saying, look, no more secrets. No more secrets. Confessing and divulging their practices. They bring their books and they burn them in the sight of all. They counted the value of them, found it to be 50 pieces of silver. And this produces an understanding and awe of the power and the many who renounce their syncretism, Jesus plus. See, I think sometimes when people come to faith in Jesus, they come and they add Jesus onto their belief system. Like, I believe in this and this and this. I'm going to add Jesus on. And that's what these folks had done. But once they realized the name of Jesus, Jesus is more than what I thought he was. What I need to do is I need to abandon these other things and just have Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone. And that's what they do. They renounce. And in verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. All right, let me, let me just say a couple things here. Thank you for walking through that with me. That's a, weird, that's a weird passage. Is it not a weird passage? It's kind of interesting in this way. Let me just ask a question about for us, for Taft Avenue Community Church. As we, we're in a season of Taft where the tide has gone out. 
right? We're in, we're in a 500-seat, a, a 600-seat sanctuary, and it's not the same as it once was, that the people who built this building, this wasn't what they had in mind, right? And it's okay for us to admit that. We're in a season because ministry happens in seasons, and we need to understand that. But as we look at this passage and we ask the question, what do we do when the tide is out, and what do we do when the tide comes in? And the answer to that is we stand faithful and ready for what God has for us. And the question is, what does faithful look like? And I think in this passage, there's a couple things. I just want to point these out to you as we finish this up. I think the first thing as we look at the Apostle Paul during this, this, this three-year period, two chapters, where so much happens, the first thing is this. One of the things that Paul does is he, he, has, he does ministry with the right people. He networks. He's got people from Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and Colossae and Laodicea and all these other cities, and he's partnering with all these people. He's, he's renting property from this, this hall of Tyrannus dude, right? He's found partners in ministry, and he's leaned into them. I think here at Taft, one of the things that excites me the most is that we've, we've, we've developed new partnerships. Like, you've developed a new partnership with me over the last two years. Like, I'm new here, but that's a good partnership. Like, we hired Connor. Connor's doing an awesome job of leading us in worship. Mia has joined our team as an intern. Like, we're, we, we introduced you to Dee. Alana's on maternity leave, but we love Alana. Like, these are all, these are great ministry relationships, and you probably have people around you that they're great ministry relationships, that one of the things about the tide coming in and faithfulness during that time is being intentional to partner with other people. You think about what Paul does in mentoring young ministers like Timothy. That's what faithfulness looks like. And not only the right people, but the right partnerships in ministry. I think one of the big questions that we have is also, you know, as we continue to build our intern team and we continue to think about who are people that we want to bring in part of this ministry. And as you think about people around you that might, you think, hey, something's going on here. I might want to invite this person into what is happening here for this ministry. You might also think, who are good organizations that we can partner with during this time? Paul partners with multiple different groups of people, properties, places where he can go. He's innovating. I think one of the other things about faithfulness as we work in ministry and we wait for the tide to come in is that we are innovative in ministry. You know what Paul does? Some of the texts um, of, the, of Acts imply that the, the hall of Tyrannus operates in the ancient world, um, especially in the Mediterranean. In the cool of the day, that's when education would take place. And then you'd have this like siesta time from like um, noon to like 3 or 4 p.m., and then you pick it back up again after, after that. And there's a lot of cultures even today that do that. What it implies is that Paul rents this property, the, hall, the Tyrannus Hall, um, during the siesta time. And he's like, hey, everybody's going to go siesta, but why don't you come in here into the shade, the cool of this, and let's just talk. Let's talk it out. It's completely innovative. It's an empty hall. He's like, empty hall. We, it's cool. Let's just, let's open it up for dialogue and for teaching. He innovates during this time. And I think for us, we, 
as a church, we need, to be, we need to be looking at our city and saying, what can we be doing for our city that the city is not doing for itself? What can we do that no one else is doing? Or what organizations are doing the sorts of things that we want to do? How can we partner with them during this season? Paul's networked. He's mentoring. He's got the right partnerships. But the other thing, and this is where, I think this is where it all boils down to. Paul is praying and requesting that God would work powerfully. He's not demanding. He's not manipulating. He's asking and praying. Our task during this time we can ask and pray, and you can ask and pray and wait, but we can also be innovative. There, there's all these things that are done together. But as we ask and we pray, we ask God to move in a powerful way in our community, in our church, that the gospel would go out, that lives would be changed. So let's do that now. Let's pray right now. I'm going to invite the, the worship team to come back up. Let's pray and let's ask. Father, we're grateful for these two chapters. There's so much that has happened in these two chapters. Father, we are reminded that not every season of ministry and of church life is a season of triumph. And we're encouraged because we see that in the book of Acts as well. But we also see, Father, that the earliest followers of Jesus asked you to move. And so we join in their chorus as we ask you to move in our community. Would you move in broken marriages? Would you move in broken lives? Would you move in addiction in our community? Would you move in the economic downturn that people are experiencing? Would you move to bring hope and a new manner of life to our community? And may we, Father, be open to what you have for us in moving us into those circles where we're asking you to move. Would you move us into our city, into our neighbors, and that we might see you powerfully at work in unsuspecting places. Give us new ideas. Give us eyes to see. Guide us. Close doors, open doors. Help us to be attentive to your spirit. And Father, we want to say this morning that we love you. We have come to follow your son Jesus because we believe he is the king. And that there is power in the name of Jesus. And we surrender our lives to him. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.